Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Anton Matley. Anton is the CEO and co-founder of Peak Multifamily, which focuses on financing and refinancing multifamily properties, and has decades of experience in commercial and investment banking, private equity, and commercial real estate. He graduated from the Zurich Business School, has worked with major financial institutions in New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Zurich, and has overseen several billion dollars in financing for commercial real estate, aircrafts, transport vessels throughout the world. Over the last 15 years, Anton has been advising family offices, high net worth individuals, as well as private investment funds, facilitating their direct investments in commercial real estate across both uh, Europe and the United States. So thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charles. And so we met at a Rod Cleef event a few months back and we had dinner and you were one of the speakers and uh, it, was, it was a fantastic presentation. And um, I want to briefly, I briefly touched on your professional background. Can you explore, explain a little bit more about your previous careers prior to co-founding uh, Peak Multifamily? Sure, I uh, would love to. So uh, I'm from Switzerland originally, started out in finance, worked uh, with uh, what is known today UBS in Switzerland briefly, and then in, in the US, in New York, in Tokyo, in Hong Kong, as you already mentioned. Then we, we sold the division to a British bank called Standard Charter Bank. And uh, that then uh, uh, caused me to move to, to Hong Kong and we covered essentially all of Asia out of Hong Kong. And after that, I left uh, banking directly and started uh, helping uh, family offices and uh, high net worth individuals with investments in direct investments. And a significant portion of that was in commercial real estate. As uh, we moved in, into that uh, segment, we realized very quickly that we like multifamily better than other asset classes because you have the ability to really make changes to a property very quickly in multifamily, which you just cannot do in, with offices, industrial spaces, and retail because you have these long-term tenant uh, leases in place. Uh, so there is nothing wrong with these other asset classes. It's just that it's, you do not really have the ability to change a property that quickly if you see an opportunity. And that's, I would say, is probably the most attractive element of multifamily. When you see a property that has some problems, you can step in and immediately uh, take action and improve the, the, the NOI or cash flow of the property, which then obviously has a positive impact on the valuation. You just cannot do that as quickly with, with other asset types. Uh, obviously, you have some uh, like mobile home parks. It's kind of similar. RV parks is similar. But all the other asset classes I mentioned are just uh, are a little bit slower when it comes to making changes to a property. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, your company, Peak Multifamily, you're a nationwide uh, facilitator of loans for multifamily. And yes. you're based in Texas. So I imagine 
you have a good percentage of your business comes from Texas. But what other areas of the country, states, uh, markets, are you seeing a lot of business from currently? Yes, uh, as you've uh, said, right, we have still quite a bit of volume in Texas. Uh, it may make up a third of, of all what we do. In the past, it was probably higher than that. Texas is one of the, the most landlord-friendly states. It has a lot of uh, so-called Class C and B properties that are suitable for for private investors who step in and do these value-add work activities, as, as I mentioned earlier. So Texas has been historically one of the most attractive markets. As valuations increased, investors have looked in, in other markets. And I would say there is a tendency always to look in, in markets where obviously there is a lot of employment growth, population growth, plus also landlord friendliness. And some of the states that suddenly pop up on a regular basis is Georgia, particularly Atlanta, is a, is a very active market. Florida has become very active, even though, frankly speaking, some of the valuations in, in Florida now are pretty steep and in some instances even exceed what we have seen in, in Texas and in some other markets. Uh, Colorado has been a very good market, but there again, the valuations have moved up quite a bit. Mm. Arizona is another market where we have seen a lot of activity. There again, because uh, everyone moves in in some of these markets, we we see the valuations going up there uh, significantly too. Uh, And there are a a number of uh, smaller markets like in, in Ohio, you have some uh, like Columbus, Cleveland, uh, these are markets where a lot of investors are active in. And then you have also some markets in the South, like Nashville, generally Tennessee, Alabama, uh, where you see quite a bit of activity. On the East Coast, I would say we have seen a lot in the Carolinas, Virginia, even though the valuations also in Virginia tend to be higher, but uh, there is only a lot of uh, activity there. Maybe yeah. uh, see less, obviously, or or these markets like California, in, in particular, as well as New York City and New York State, where investors tend to move out of these markets and then invest in some of the markets that I've mentioned. Right. So it's kind of the typical approach of looking landlord-friendly states with better yields than what you would get in, in some of these high-cost and high-price markets like California. Great. Yeah. With, with you being so well-versed with interest rates and where we are now in um, coming up to the last quarter of 2019 and we have an election next year, where do you see over the next 12 months in regards to interest rates and lending? Uh, availability of funds, um, where it's been in the past several years after the downturn, and where you see for the next 12 months of interest rates and just the ability for financing for multifamily? Yeah, uh, it's a difficult question, right? Everyone wants to know the answer. Uh, Unfortunately, no one has a crystal ball. I think what we likely are going to see, in my view, and again, I might be completely wrong, but uh, I think we certainly have clouds on the horizon with the trade war with with 
to a global economy struggling with Europe and Asia major economies uh, being in the negative interest rate territory which in my view will likely also force uh, the United States to be more aggressive when it comes to to interest rate cuts so in the short term I think there is a good chance as uh, the global economy including the United States may slow down further that we that we will see kind of a push towards uh, lower interest rates which also has an impact on the 10-year treasury in particular i think we have seen quite a bit of of a drop uh, over the last uh, year it's very volatile we were at 1.46% and then we jumped up to the 190s within less than a month so it's a, it's a highly volatile environment but overall i would say the interest rate levels that are important for multifamily investing and other commercial real estate which is really that 10 year treasury apart from short term financing which is usually libor and and prime rate i would say there is a good chance that we will see these the same low rates and potentially lower However, I would say as the, the risk appetite and the risk aversion increases with lenders, particularly we have seen it with Fannie and Freddie, even though the 10-year treasury may be lower, equal or lower than it is today, there might be a possibility that the lenders are actually increasing their spread. So we may not see a benefit on the borrowing end as a borrower mm-hmm. of lower rates or significantly lower rates because the the risk margin that is added to the treasury rate is is increasing. Now, for most investors that are going to be passive that are listening or for any type of investor that's doing direct investment, I imagine that the majority of what you're doing for Peak is going to be Fannie and Freddie Mac. Can you can you explain what that is? And these are going to be for loans that are a million dollars plus for the loan amount. Yes, that's right. Uh, we certainly do have, have a good amount of, of agency loans, uh, Fannie and Freddie. The, these entities were really created already back in the uh, 1930s, late 30s, uh, with the Great Depression. Uh, you essentially had liquidity crisis and you, you had all these banks that essentially were sitting on loans, mostly residential loans back then where obviously they needed a rescue vehicle and that's where uh, these agencies were created. They are uh, not truly government uh, entities, but more government-sponsored entities. So they are uh, not really uh, formally guaranteed by the US government, but there is an implicit guarantee that is attached to to them, which allows them to essentially fund at lower cost than than someone in the private market would be able to do, right? So the purpose today, obviously, besides the single family side, where they are the major players, as everyone knows, uh, on the multifamily side, they were not really... Uh, they, their market share was relatively small uh, in the early 2000 to mid 2000 uh, because the so-called CMBS market, which is a private collateral mortgage-backed security market, was really active and very aggressive uh, for multifamily properties. 
But as uh, 2007 and 2008 and 9 came around and the whole market collapsed, the CMBS market essentially disappeared and the agencies stepped in big time. And uh, over the last te roughly 10 years, they have picked up a significant portion of the multifamily side. And so now they have become essentially the, uh, the major players when it comes to financing multifamily properties. Is it true, I've heard before, that only 1% of Fannie and Freddie loans during the downturn went uh, in foreclosure. Is that correct? Yes, uh, that's uh, roughly speaking, it's correct. In some instances, it's even smaller than that, depending on the, the subclass. Uh, so the, the default rate was was extremely low uh, because of the, uh, the underwriting, uh, the way these deals were underwritten already back then compared to CMBS loans that uh, had a much more aggressive underwriting to them. Uh, I would say today CMBS loans are underwritten pretty similar to, to the agency loans, sometimes a little bit more aggressive, but still very similar. Back then, in pre-2008, it was common to see CMBS loans that, that allowed to be underwritten to, to performer uh, income, and obviously they got burned there big time, whereas the agencies already had pretty strict underwriting requirements. Right. So that's that was one of the reasons why why the agencies weren't really suffering these losses. That doesn't mean that the owners of the properties didn't uh, have losses. Right. Uh, obviously, you you have the the debt service coverage and you have the leverage margin uh, of twenty twenty five percent that the, the Fannie and Freddie were enjoying. So that's why the actual default rate was, was not nearly as big. Also, pre-2007, they essentially financed properties that really felt comfortable with, so and sponsors they're comfortable with. Uh, so the overall portfolio was just very sound. And one last thing I want to get into just uh, before you, you hear so much on the privatization of Fannie and Freddie. And they put Trump in the title of the article and then you have people, you know, it goes one way or the other way politically. What would really happen? Um, I've heard hedge funds would make out, but what, what's really would be the end result to a real estate investor if they were privatized? Yeah. Obviously, we still do not know what direction it's going to go. I think my personal belief is whatever the privatization ultimately is going to look like, there will be some mandates that the government will put on whoever is taking over. And what I believe is only when it comes to, uh, to affordability, uh, these type of properties will uh, have the requirement to be financed, even if it's, even if it's privatized, so that... Uh, Whoever takes over does not have the freedom to just shut down whatever segment they want, but that they have the, the mandate to cover particularly the affordability, affordable properties. And I do not just talk about tax credit properties, just properties that tend to be more affordable to, to lower income households. And uh, that naturally covers a lot of the B and C class properties. 
And so I think particularly in that BNC class space, regardless of, of how exactly that privatization is going to look like, my belief is that there will be very supportive of that segment going forward. Whereas possibly when it comes to the class A and luxury market, they may not be willing to be as supportive. Uh, we just don't know. But when it comes to the affordable side, I think we, we should be safe regardless of, of how it ultimately is going to look like. When it comes to the actual volume in the market, uh, obviously that is a little bit trickier to answer uh, as long as there is plenty of liquidity and demand for these type of loans in the market. I think we will not have an issue as we have it today. It's only a privatization would could easily be done because there is enough appetite in the market. The big question is what's going to happen if the economy turns and there is no more appetite to finance these type of loans. And I suspect if that worst case scenario is going to happen, we may see, again, the government stepping in to rescue whoever was privatized before. So ultimately, I think housing is such a core element to our economy that privatization or not, and wherever the economy is in five years, 10 years from now, the U.S. government will always step in as necessary to make sure that there is enough housing stock available. Right. So with anything with the government, nothing really changes. So (laughs) no matter who's in, who's in. So the focus that we were, we have with a lot of, with our listeners is um, global investing. And for passive investors, we also have some investors that are foreign that want to invest directly. And since your firm works a lot with agency debt, with larger apartment complexes, what would be first steps if you had a foreign investor that came in to, that was said, we're we're buying plus million dollar complex. What is the, what are the first steps to get them in the right direction before they even start putting offers on properties? Yes. So I think we probably have to make a distinction between someone who just invests passively with with a U.S. sponsor versus someone who is abroad and decides to, to invest directly into U.S. real estate by himself or with a couple of partners that are all from abroad. In the latter case, when someone is, is investing directly in a property without just being a passive investor, I would say reach out to to lawyers that are versed in that type of uh, cross-border investing, as well as CPAs that are well-versed in, in that type of activity both in your own country as well as in the United States. Because you want to understand the consequences of what your investment is going to have from a tax perspective, from a legal perspective, from a reporting perspective. So yes, obviously, the the, uh, the reason why someone wants to invest is diversification, potentially cash flow appreciation, safety from the home market and so on. That is all well understood, but uh, if you do not really understand the underlying legal and tax ramification, you may actually lose out what, whatever looked great initially. You, if you miss certain elements, you actually may not have a great deal and you, you potentially lose money. Right? So it's really important that you truly understand 
all the ramification of of sending money to the U.S. and start investing. Yeah. For a direct investor, what are what are the normal what are the additional lender requirements? So, as I understand it, for U.S. investors with agency debt, it's usually a twenty five percent down payment. 10% to show is liquidity, cash liquidity for one of the sponsors. So that kind of as a reserve. What would be in addition to that for a foreign investor? So maybe they just have a US entity. They don't have an SSN. They don't have a social security number. They might just have the ITIN and then the EIN number with your LLC. What else would you require or your your lender require, the bank you're putting in? Yeah. So the down payment requirement is really not not different, right? It all depends essentially whether the property supports the, the loan from a cash flow perspective. And it can be as low as 20%, whether it's a US or a foreign investor. But you mentioned 25. I would say uh, in most markets today, you probably have to expect that it's more around 25 rather than just 20%. When it comes to to the lender requirement, it depends whether you go with a bank. Banks are more flexible in a lot of instances. But again, when we specifically talk about agencies, there we uh, uh, have a doubling of the requirement. So if you have, uh, let's say, uh, a loan that for a, for a U.S. buyer, just as a simple example, a one million dollar loan, your net worth requirement would be one million for you as well as your partners in the deal that guarantee it. Right? Uh, if you were a foreign investor, that would be double. So you would need two million in net worth. And when it comes to post-closing liquidity, it's the same principle. For a U.S. investor, it would be 10% or more of the loan amount. So in this case, 100000 And if it's a foreign investor or a group of foreign investors, then it would be 200000 meaning 20%. So that's essentially the, the two main requirements. Uh, you do not really have to set up you personally an LLC strictly from a from a lender perspective, but uh, you still have to, to to decide with your lawyers and your CPA how that structure should look specifically. Typically, it's still done obviously through an LLC as the actual borrowing entity, but that's not necessarily you as the uh, as the investor. You might be the guarantor, right? So the actual structure will vary depending on what your uh, legal and tax advisors are going to, to tell you. But from a lender perspective, that's really uh, your double the net worth and double post-closing liquidity are the two key requirements. What you also need is to, to you need to have a lawyer or a CPA that is the service agent in the United States, right? Because you obviously you're not present, so you need to have a, an address with a lawyer or a or a CPA, and that's essentially it as a as a minimum requirement. Do when they need a cosigner? To, they do not need a cosigner as long as a lender is is satisfied with 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 all the uh, the information that is being provided, right? Obviously, when it comes to to bank statements, typically. It's a little bit harder to verify when it comes to order net worth, particularly when it comes to 
to business net worth, it sometimes it's it's harder to uh, to really verify that that net worth is really there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had situations where a foreign investor had to provide an appraisal from from the home country, then then that was also translated into English, mm-hmm. right? So it it all depends, but uh, ultimately it's only doable to do it without any any co-signer. In reality, though, very often you have still a U.S. Uh, representative that is 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 at least part of of the deal just to facilitate it, right? Mm-hmm. So, what in theory is possible in practice doesn't really happen very often. In most instances, all foreign investors. Uh, have a trusted party in the United States that that, that takes care of the, the day-to-day activities like asset management and all the the, the legal and tax requirements. Yeah. Does that post-closing liquidity need to be in the United States in one form or another, or can it be in their home country? It can be in their home country. It uh, depending on the lender, then they will require that some yeah. funds are in the United States. It, uh, it's flexible, so it's, it's not a, a black or white uh, decision that is being made. Uh, but very often, a lender will require that there is a U.S. bank account in place. And sometimes they will also require that uh, some form of, of liquidity is, is within the United States. Mm-hmm. But that the decision for how much that should be depends largely on the comfort level that the lender has uh, about the property itself, the leverage, as well as the, the buyer. Yeah, I, m- so, I imagine the whole team that they have on the ground and involved in the whole project adds right, to that. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so certainly, generally speaking, right, if someone comes to the US from abroad and wants to invest, has no track record, I would say uh, a lender, whether it's a bank or an agency, is, will certainly be more conservative. And it could well be that even though technically the property would qualify for just a 20% down payment, that they may require a higher down payment just to feel comfortable with someone who just started out mm-hmm. from nowhere in the United States, right? So ultimately, a lender, regardless of what the rules are, a lender still needs to be comfortable that the whole team, including uh, whoever represents that investor in the U.S. as well as the property management company can perform. Right now, if for that's all for direct investing, and we mentioned um, we touched on earlier about the passive investors. So, if I'm a syndicator and I'm accepting funds from a foreign-based passive investor, okay, they'd be a limited partner or LP on the deal. What is the easiest way to verify? And I've heard this from uh, attorneys before that have said to have them set up their own LLC in the United States and have them set up a bank account. And if the bank approves them for account, it pretty much covers the KYC or know your customer, which avoids, especially in this era, our global economy with the, with the work, you know, you, you might be taking money from you don't know who you are. So how do you, how would a syndicator protect themselves in that situation? Yes. I would say uh, I would be very wary of of any funds that come 
from abroad directly into the sponsor's operating account, borrower account, uh, even into title escrow, whatever it is, because you essentially as a sponsor would have the full 100% obligation to determine whether that money is clean, right? Now, in reality, even if you spend a tremendous amount of time doing that, you still cannot be 100% sure. And uh, the major safeguard to not to uh, completely remove your obligation to do that, but at least give you a much higher level of comfort is to ensure that they send the money uh, from a U.S. bank account, whether it's a personal U.S. bank account or an LLC account, is not really relevant at that point, right? So it could be a foreign investor that has a U.S. bank account in his, him, his or her own name and make that investment in, in that personal name. As long as the funds come from that personal U.S. bank account, uh, at least, as you mentioned, the bank has already gone through, through that uh, uh, KYC process, you still have to ask questions. They still should answer the questionnaire and all that uh, to make sure that you have the docs in order, right? So you still have that obligation as uh, someone who accepts money from, from someone from abroad, but at least you have that uh, very high safety net. U.S. Bank has already gone through through that process, yeah. right? So if it, yeah, because the bank's going to have more access to a thorough background and underwriting check of someone versus just an independent syndicator that's probably never even dealt with this before. So that makes that makes perfect sense. So that's right. Yes, and banks have whole armies of departments that focus on this, right? Yeah. So a syndicator could never replicate the systems that uh, all these U.S.-based banks have in place to to verify. Obviously, it still happens to them that they make mistakes, but overall, at least that they have all the systems that that uh, at least reduce the risk very significantly. Okay. All right, great. And um, I wanted to just ask, uh, if you have new investors that come to you looking to invest maybe in their first larger property and if they're U.S. or foreign-based, what, what is the advice you usually ask them for what they should do before they start any type of process of purchasing multifamily? Yeah. Uh, if it's obviously, if you do the direct investment, just investigate that market, investigate the legal and tax ramifications. Mm -hmm. right? So that's really the, the key part. When you do a passive investment, investigate the apart from just studying the markets themselves right investigate the sponsor uh, and when you feel that you're comfortable investigate again and probably investigate again so that's kind of the crucial piece when you're a passive investor from abroad uh, do not believe whatever you see on facebook and linkedin wherever right uh, talk to other investors that have invested with that particular sponsor, that you really get a, a true picture of that sponsor. Well, and on top of that, still look at the uh, legal and tax ramifications mm -hmm. of your investment, right? Because the, 
as a sponsor, you are not really responsible when it comes to the tax ramifications for you back home, right? So a sponsor, obviously, if they are withholding taxes with payments and all that, the sponsor is responsible for that. But but you have a double taxation back home is not really the the, the, the sponsor's responsibility to yeah. determine that. So that's really you as an investor. Uh, that's your responsibility and that's a very important element yeah they definitely have to do their due diligence and then make sure that they have their tax and legal bases covered before getting started with anything so how can people learn more about peak multifamily and uh, your firm and yourself We've, the easiest is to uh, to reach out uh, to us uh, through our website uh, which is uh, peak mff dot com uh, like the mountain peak and then m as a mary and two times f as a frederick dot com you can also reach me directly uh, my phone number is uh, 9727257878 my email address maybe you're posting it so it's amadley at peakmff.com we're also on facebook we are on linkedin so it's very easy to to reach out to us we are because we work with a lot of syndicators, we are uh, everyone within our firm. We are pretty active on on Facebook and LinkedIn. So it's uh, if you reach uh, out to us through Messenger or or any other form, uh, we will respond uh, to you through that channel too. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And I will post all that contact information and links um, all in the notes and in the both for podcast and for YouTube. And I want to appreciate you for being on the show today. And I know we're going to be at another conference this weekend. So I'll see you in a couple of days. Yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, thanks for having me, Charles. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.